Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. The scripture is from Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with all your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs... He had deluded those who'd received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. 
The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Good morning. Well, let's start with a poll. If you were here two weeks ago, Pete made a whole thing about how he had the hardest portion of Revelation. You never really want to stand up after the line that they gorged themselves on human flesh, but here we are. Um, so today, as you can imagine, there are some hard parts of this chapter. Um, so bear with me. Our hope is that as you would go through it, as we begin to unlock it, um, I was actually speaking to Charlotte Hutchinson. Are you here? Yes. She said this Revelation series, Revelation when properly understood, should be called Bizarrely Encouraging. And I thought that was the perfect, that's what we should have called the series, Bizarrely Encouraging, a look at the book of Revelation. And so caveat today, we are going to talk about some difficult themes. We're going to talk about, you know, fire and feasts and forgiveness. We're going to talk about hell and hope and heroes. And there are some difficult passages, but my hope is that we would come out of today bizarrely encouraged. And actually, that is our hope for this entire series, that this series would be bizarre, both in its method, this book is a bizarre book, but also in its magnitude, that you would come out of this series bizarrely encouraged by Jesus, by the work of Jesus, by the promise of Jesus, and by the future that Jesus promises. And so let me just pray. Would you hold out your hands? Lord Jesus, we come to this portion of Scripture with reverence. Lord Jesus, that this is your word. And God, I pray that as we begin to look at it, you would lead us into all truth. Would you reveal yourself in its words, Lord Jesus? Ultimately, we gather in your presence, Lord Jesus, that we would see you that we would discover you, that we would find you in new ways, and we would leave transformed into your likeness. Amen. Amen. Okay, so two weeks ago, Pete talked to us out of Revelation 13, and we grappled with the dragon and the two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, who are energized by the work of the dragon. And we talked about 666, the mark of the beast, this idea that the promise, the way that the beast promises 777, perfection, but never quite lives up to it. It promises everything and delivers very little. But we talked about the way that it seduces and calls the people of God away from their allegiance to Jesus to follow the political, the religious, the economic powers of the beast. Next week, there's no church, the week after that, Jill is going to come and talk to us out of Revelation 20 and 21. We're going to look at the day, at the time when there is no death, there is no suffering, there is no pain. We're going to look at their new heavens and the new earth where there is no sea. That place of cosmic chaos will be gone forever. So this week, we stand between Revelation 13, the age of the beast, and Revelation 21, the new age, the new heavens, and the new earth. 
and Revelation 19 and actually Revelations 16 through part of 20 grapple with this question. How do we move from Revelation 13 to Revelation 21? What happens? What happens that marks the end of the age of the beast and summons and begins the age of God's eternal goodness? And I'd like to suggest that what we find in this chapter is two feasts or two parties. Okay, these, these chapters, 16 through 20, they are often called the Day of Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is actually a place where it's, you know, you've probably heard about it from Bruce Willis films or... Wait, was that Armageddon or was that Deep Impact? Which is, that, was, that was Armageddon. So that's Armageddon. So you probably hear, well, that word comes from Revelation. Revelation 16, it's this place. Armageddon was a place, a place where people gathered. And 16 through 20 talk about this final day, this final battle in different ways. And so as the armies gather on the day of Armageddon, in Revelation 19, we read about two feasts. The feast of the wedding supper of the Lamb and the feasts of of the birds or the supper of God. And so we're going to tackle those in turn. And actually, they interlock and they communicate to each other. So the first feast, the supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding of the Lamb. So Jesus, the Lamb, is the bridegroom. And who is the bride? We are. It's the church. It's the, the thread all the way through Scripture. We are not only the ones who are invited, we are also the ones with whom this wedding feast, these wedding bells are ringing out for. At the end of the age will come a time when the great wedding feast of God happens with his people. And there's a couple of things that I want to pull out which I think are important for us. First, in placing the relationship on a framework in terms of marriage, what the Bible is communicating to us is that salvation is a marriage and therefore it speaks of dignity, delight and desire. Dignity, delight and desire. We stand on the brink of Advent, that season where we as the church remember that Jesus put skin and bone on, that he came that he stepped into our darkness and he called us into a loving relationship. When you read Revelation 19, you should hear the wedding bells calling you into deeper relationship with God. What does it mean? It means that you should feel worthy and wanted. You should feel desired and dignified. And it should mean this to you, that God is not looking for servants. God is looking for a spouse. God is not looking for servants. God is looking for a spouse. And so the creator of all things has prepared a feast in your honor and called you into deep, intimate relationship with him. And actually what the Bible begins to do is it begins to frame some of the language that we find all throughout the book of Revelation. Isn't it interesting? You read it there. All the way through Revelation, when it talks about the work of the powers, it talks about them in terms of seduction, prostitution, adultery. What is it saying? 
Well, it's saying that the work of the enemy is not one of force, but one of temptation. Isn't it interesting that at the beginning, I think Bill spoke on it here in Guildford, in the letters to the churches, what Jesus constantly calls the church back to is their first love. Jesus, in his own apocalyptic discourse, he uses this line, the love of many will grow cold. And isn't that true? Isn't that what happens? Love doesn't just stop. It grows cold. And actually, the work of the enemy isn't one that forces you to do things, but silently, quietly, and slowly seduces you away from your relationship with God. It promises all sorts of things, but they all turn out to be 666, never 777. And so how do we step back into this relationship with God? How do you make your love hot again? Well, I'd like to suggest that it's action. We have been deceived somehow into fear, thinking that love is a feeling. Yeah, the feelings come. But when love grows cold, don't begin to look for the feeling again. Do something about it. Was there a time when you used to love listening to worship music, but you've realized you haven't played any worship music in a while? You used to love to be in scripture, but you've realized that you've watched all sorts of series on Netflix and you haven't opened the Bible in a little while. You've realized that you really thought you were going to sign up for an hour in the prayer room, but you just didn't get round to it. The love of many will grow cold. But actually, as we step back in, as we hear the wedding bells calling us back into relationship with God, there is a feast prepared in your honor. Prepared in your honor. Because the language the Bible uses, and I want this to hit us, is that when we step away from our allegiance to Jesus, we are not servants, not fulfilling the desires of a king or a governor or a boss. We are a spouse grieving a husband. And that is what Revelation 19 is calling us into. And do you know what? We are not very committed people. I saw a thing recently where it said in Surrey News that Guildford, Guildford, has the highest rate of adultery of anywhere in the UK. Anywhere in the UK. So what's the call on the church? Faithfulness. Commitment. And if that's affected someone here, maybe even as a perpetrator, or that's happened to you, then the grace of God goes out to you. But we are called to be a people of commitment and covenant And it happens in small ways. You know, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. One thing that I've noticed out of COVID, when we had to keep cancelling, there's a lot more permission to cancel plans at the last minute. You, yeah? But we're a people who God said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be people of faithfulness and commitment. Because it happens in the small, but then ultimately it happens in the big. And when the dragon and the beast come knocking and come saying, hey, I've got a better way. You can say, no, I've planted my feet and I hear the wedding bells. And I know where I'm going. So number one, the wedding feast calling us into the loving, intimate relationship with God. That was meant to be the encouraging half of this talk, so... Come on, come on. 
That's the first thing. There's a wedding party. Second, there's a war party. Now, if you were reading there before the birds came and kind of pecked everything, we read about this idea of um, a lake of burning sulfur or a lake of fire. And this is where Revelation begins to talk about divine judgment. And obviously, if, you know, you're a person, then that would bring up thoughts of you around hell, right? Hell and this lake of fire. And I don't have time to give a full overview of the biblical imagination of hell. But in a book looking at Revelation, I think it would be wrong to avoid it altogether. And so, if I may, let me just give some thoughts, some framing that would at least begin to place some hangers in which we can begin to grapple with this concept of hell. Maybe for you to go away and do some further reading. Firstly, one of the things that I hope you've gleaned from this series is that Revelation is primarily not literal, right? It's primarily pictorial and metaphorical. You know, I hope that if I'm called to be the bride of Christ, when he turns up, he is not a lamb with seven eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth, for example, right? We are, this is not a pictorial, this is not a literal book. All the way through, we've talked about even the mark of the beast. All of these things are pictorial. They're images grasping at language that we cannot talk about. Now, interestingly, when it comes to hell, the temptation is to begin to read that literally, And for most of us, our imagination around hell isn't actually in line with scripture. It's closer to a very influential piece of work by an Italian poet called Dante. Now, Dante came up with this thing called Dante's Inferno, which I think there's a picture coming up on the screen. Now, Dante, this Italian poet, what he did is he took some kind of scriptural images and a whole load of Greek mythology and he fused it together to create this work called Dante's Inferno. Now we don't need to go into it but basically Dante's Inferno is there's these sort of concentric circles of hell whereby your deadly sin leads you deeper in and as part of your punishment for the way that you've lived you suffer the consequence of your sin on earth right? So if you struggled with lust, which I think is like the second circle, then your eternal experience is being thrust about by the storms, sort of as a poetic justice of the way in which you were thrown about by lust, right? And as you go through, you encounter all these different, and he ranked the sins all the way through. Now, interestingly, when we think about a cultural imagination of hell, what comes to mind is this sort of torture chamber house of horrors, right? That's what springs to mind when we talk to people, when we think about it, when we encounter it in scripture. But in the words of Master Yoda, we must unlearn what we have learned, right? This is not really what the Bible has to say about hell at all. Now, what does the Bible have to say about hell? Well, I'd like to, the first thing is that I think the Bible talks like it does through the rest of Revelation in terms of metaphor. Why do I think that? Well, for example, what are the two primary images that Jesus himself uses for hell? Fire and darkness, right? I've got the scriptures here. Darkness, Matthew 8, 12, and fire, Mark 9, 47, for example. Now, can anyone think why there might be a problem if you took a literal view of hell being both completely dark and full of fire? Yeah? 
They're incompatible together. But this is not meant to be encouraging for us. Right, although it's not literal, the Bible is still talking about something and the best description it can give to explain an existence that is beyond our words is darkness and the isolation of darkness and fire and fire in the way that it consumes. But what is it saying about this and who goes there? Well, I don't have time to run through the full thread of this, but let me just give you the end, and then you know you can go away and look it up for yourself. I think Paul puts his finger on the money when he says in 2 Thessalonians this, eternal ruin away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. What I think the Bible is talking about is that God honors human agency and human free will so much that if people choose an existence away from him, he honors that choice. But the presence of the Lord is the place of light, life, and goodness. So what is the best way to describe the place that is completely separated from the presence of God? If God is light, darkness. If God is life, who holds everything together, fire, which by its very nature consumes and eradicates. And so C.S. Lewis put it so well in his masterful piece, The Great Divorce. He puts it like this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. To leave them alone, that's what hell is. And so I think what the Bible is saying is that there is an existence away from the presence of God. Who goes there? I think people who choose it. How does that choice happen? I don't know. And I do believe that the other thing that the Bible says is that the decision about who goes where after death is something that is never placed within the agency of humankind. This is a decision that is left to the perfect justice, wisdom, and grace of God. So we shouldn't get rid of it. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Revelation talks about there is this existence But judgment is something that is reserved purely for God. So landing that all the way back into Revelation 19. So take a breath, move on from that. Tim Mackey says this from the Bible Project. He says, before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil... And everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want to exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined. Never again able to corrupt God's new creation. 
So we've talked about how do we move from the tyranny of Revelation 13 into God's new world in Revelation 21. Well, I think we can all agree something needs to happen. Right? When we look around, and the lie is goodwill, optimism, and technological advancement will move us from Revelation 13 to Revelation 21, but it just is not good enough. We desperately need someone to do something. And so Revelation 19 gives us the someone and gives us the something. The divine warrior will come. And I think that word quarantined is so good. We'll do something that will never again allow corruption to enter God's new world. Now, very first week, you with me? Yeah? We're covering a lot of ground. Very first week, I said that revelation is what? Revelation is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus by who? By Jesus to John for us. Okay? Really important. So what does revelation unveil? Jesus. Who gives the revelation to John? Jesus. So what is revelation? It's a self-portrait, right? It's God showing himself to someone. So Revelation 19, the moment when God reveals divine judgment, what does he say about himself? What, if you will, is his CV in that moment? Because I believe that what we're going to discover is that his CV in that moment is what makes him adequate to the task. I am... I was chatting to someone this week and was reminded of a time that I was like deeply inadequate for a task. And I was thinking on these words of Jesus. And um, someone was asking me actually about Hannah's recovery from a C-section. And they were just saying, how was that? And, like, you know, and, they, and they'd heard rumors of the fact that you have to do these injections to stop the blood clotting. And they were asking me about it. And they were like, did you have to do that? And I was like... Oh, yeah. My like, mind went back five years ago to when um, in the hospital they brought out these injections and they said, okay, you're going to need to take these just because it's a safety precaution. Now, Hannah was like, Adam, I don't really want to do these. Would you mind like, giving these injections to me? Now, I am like deeply terrified of needles, you know, like deeply terrified to the point where like, I get lightheaded. But I was like, man, you've just gone through major surgery. Like, you know, you need me. I'm like, of course. So I'm like presenting this strong. And then the time comes when you have to do it. And what I didn't realize is that these needles, they have to go just under the skin. And so with one hand, you administer the injection. With the other hand, you have to pinch the skin and put it in. Well, I was used to going lightheaded. What I didn't realize is that the blood left my head. It also left my thumbs. Right? And I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you've like woken up from sleeping on your arm and it's like, it's not part of your body anymore. It's like an appendage that's like flopping around. So Hannah's like, are you okay? And I'm thinking like, at this point, I've got two flippers. I want you to like picture at this point, like this is a seal trying to give like an injection. And I was like, and I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Well, like I'm seeing dots and like trying to do it. Well, needless to say, by the time the second baby came around, I was not recruited to the task of giving injections anymore. But what is it that Jesus reveals about himself? 
What is the promises that he makes even in Revelation 19 as we grapple with these complex, confusing, and slightly terrifying ideas of divine judgment? I'd like to say there's three things which will, as Charlotte said, leave us bizarrely encouraged. They are his name, his robe, and his word. Okay, his name. So, it says that in Revelation 19.11, it says that heavens open. This is the first point in the whole of Revelation in which heaven is opened. All sorts of things have been opened, but never heaven until this point. When heaven is opened, what does John see? He doesn't see a place, he sees a person. Heaven is a person. Heaven is the person of Jesus. And it says he sees a person whose name is faithful and true. Faithful and true. The one who comes to judge is the one who is faithful and true. We've talked about a wedding. We've talked about our own infidelity. Well, the one who comes to judge is the one who has always met our infidelity with nothing but faithfulness. And he is true. And you know that it says later on, it says that he has a name that no one knows apart from himself. So what's it talking about there? Well, on one level, it's talking about the fact that given all eternity, we will never get to the bottom of Jesus. He has many names in scriptures, in scriptures, in scripture, but we will never get to the bottom of those. But the other thing it's talking about was in ancient thought, the idea was that if you knew someone's name, you could exert an element of control over them. And so if I go, Peter, he looks, right? Just on the most basic level, well, the belief was that that was even bigger. And there was a sense that if you knew someone's name, you could exert some level of control over them. So what's it saying? It's saying that Jesus has a name that no one knows but himself. There is no one and nothing that can manipulate Jesus. So when he comes to judge, he is faithful and true, and no one and nothing can stop him being faithful and true. Did you see the difference? It says that on one head were many crowns. It's interesting, the rest of Scripture, we've seen numerous heads with crowns. Heads being different sources of authority. What it's saying is that this is one person in whom all authority rests. This is one head with many crowns. He is faithful and he is true. So number one, his name. Number two, his robe. Well, what's happening here? It says that he has a robe dipped in blood. Now, the battle lions have been drawn. The nations and the beast and the antichrist have gathered. And then it says the one who is faithful and true comes riding on a white horse. And he's dipped in his own blood when? Before the battle has even happened. And you know what? The battle never happens. The battle of Armageddon never happens. Why? Because the one who is faithful and true is already dipped in his own blood. What happened is that on Golgotha, the battle was already fought. Why do we know that he's dipped in his own blood? Because that's the full breadth of scripture. In Revelation 14, 9, I think it's coming up here. 
it talks about, there's this imagery of the wine press, and it's pulled from Isaiah. And in Isaiah, it talks about Jesus treading the wine press and blood coming out. But interestingly, when Revelation quotes that, it adds this little bit. It says, The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press. Where? Outside the city. And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 16,000 stadia. Those three words preach a message to us. Who was taken outside the city? Who was led like a lamb to the slaughter outside the city? On the day of Armageddon, there will be no bloodbath. Why? Because the bloodbath has already happened. When the lamb, when the son of God was whipped 39 times and blood poured from his back, when a crown of thorns was placed upon his head and blood poured down his face, when his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross and blood poured onto the floor. The battle has already been fought. The blood has already been spilled. And it doesn't have to happen again. Why does that matter? Well, we talked about the day in which How does God reveal himself on the day of judgment? He does so dipped in a robe of his own blood. When he comes for divine judgment, he's preaching the gospel of grace to us. You know, um, in the summer, when it was just ridiculously hot, we went down to Devon for a few days as a family. And we found this spot on the beach. And it was like one of these long beaches where you looked like a hundred meters, like hundreds of meters that way, and you could see hundreds of meters that way. And like every inch of this beach was just packed with people, right? And we stayed all the way until the end, and we got fish and chips to watch the sun go down. And it was interesting as all the people started to leave, you just saw like just the sand, just there was just havoc everywhere. Like there wasn't a place of sand that wasn't like churned up or dug in or had rubbish on it or had things dug into it or you know just picture like just peek picture like just sand just havoc on the sand everywhere and we looked at it and then interesting we went back early the next day to the same beach and one single tide had come in and restored everything and so often with the message of grace it's not about understanding it here it's about understanding it here and I stood there and God said to me that's grace It doesn't matter what havoc sin or people or life has wreaked upon your soul. It is no match for the sheer weight of the tide of God's grace washing over you. Why? Because he's been dipped in his own blood. And now, what does that mean for us as we look to move out into the world and we look to carry on? Well, Jesus says this interesting thing in... um, I think it's Matthew 12. It's the next slide. So when Jesus is being asked about his ability to cast out demons, he has this interesting line and he says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, but then he can plunder his house? What does that mean for us? Well, I would like to suggest it means this. The battle has already been won. The strong man has already been tied up. Colossians tells us that on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, 
the principalities and powers were disarmed and a public spectacle was made on them. So if the strong man has already been tied up, what are we to do? We're called to go and plunder the house. If the strong man doesn't get tied up until the die of Armageddon, then what are we to do? I don't know. But what happened was that the strong man was tied up at Golgotha. And now the call on the church is to go and plunder the house. How do we do that? Same way Jesus did, through self-sacrificial acts of love. Every time that you choose to meet judgment with kindness, you plunder the strong man's house. Every time you forgive, instead of looking for justice or vengeance, you plunder the strong man's house. Every time you look in kindness beyond your own boundaries to someone else, you plunder the strong man's house. Why? Because the, the strong man has been tied up. One day the day will come. Have you noticed final thing, his word? The only weapon that the rider on the white horse who is faithful in true needs, it says, is the sword of his mouth. Creation began with what? A word. In the ministry of Jesus, what does he constantly do? What does he say to the demon, get out? What does he say to Lazarus, come out? What does he say to the little girl who's died, get up? It's the word of his mouth. Yes, the shadow of death still lingers over the land. And one day Jesus will come and simply with a word will put everything right forever and will quarantine death for all time. Why has it not happened yet? I don't know. But I do know that right now I'm called to plunder the strong man's house. That's the call. Because in Golgotha, he disarmed the principalities and powers. And we live in the now and not yet. And I'm looking forward to when the not yet becomes yet. But right now I'm called, along with all of us, to go and plunder the strong man's house. And I do that by self-sacrificial acts of love. Knowing that when the final thing happens, there is, not no, there is no great struggle between the dragon and the lamb. He need only speak. That's all. And everything will put right. Don't worry about the end of the world. Because Jesus need only speak. But right now we're called to love. And so maybe we could just quickly get the band up. We're going to sing a final song. And there's this refrain in it that says, the lamb has overcome. And as we have gone through Revelation, my hope is that as we sing this, there'd be more substance around the promise of that. The lamb well and truly has overcome. The battle has been fought. The blood has been poured out. And now what we hear in our ears is the great wedding bells. We celebrated communion today, this prophetic act that speaks of the great wedding feast that we are called into. And we follow the divine warrior who has a name that no one knows but himself. But what we do know is that he is faithful and he is true. And he comes to us dipped in a robe of his own blood. Blood poured out in love. It doesn't matter what has happened to us, what life has thrown to us. The sheer force of his goodness and his grace restores us forever.
And one day, the great hope that we live in is that everything will be put right because he'll simply speak. But right now, we get to go and plunder the house. Would you rise? Lord Jesus, God, we say worthy is the Lamb. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen.